All right. It is the week of January 1st, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oje, and today we've got so much to talk about. It's a new year, new podcast, new paint of color in the office. I am back in the office. If it's a little echoey, let me know, but I think I've got that worked out. going to tweak with some stuff in the next coming weeks, but so much to talk about. And on this particular podcast, I wanted to narrow it down to four big issues, in my opinion, that all just happened in the past week or so. And that is the Dana White scandal regarding uh, the slap leg being in jeopardy, the fight with his wife, all that stuff. We need to talk about the business ramifications for Dana White and possibly even the UFC going forward. Then we're going to talk about Bellator possibly being on the market. Who is a good suitor to buy Bellator if it they are truly up for sale? We're also going to talk about Jake Paul's PFL signing, major news. A lot of people are jumping to some conclusions I don't think we should jump to yet, but very important signing by the PFL, and we need to break that down. And last but not least, the FTC is looking to ban non-compete clauses. Could be massive, could also not go anywhere. I'll explain why at the end of this podcast. So timestamps at the bottom, as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so first thing we're going to start off on today's episode is the Dana White scandal regarding the altercation with his wife. So unless you've been living under a rock or you just happen to have stepped away from MMA coverage for a while, if you're watching this show, you've most likely seen it. Um, there's a video of Dana White and his wife getting into a scuffle in Mexico, I believe, at a nightclub on New Year's Eve where they're yelling and arguing he seems to grab her. She seems to slap him. And then he hits her a couple of times, slapping, not punching. Uh, and that's where the video ends. TMZ broke the story first. They painted this in a pretty lenient light, I would say. Um, media has been split on their coverage and stance on this, which we'll get into ESPN in a minute because... This loops back to a couple of things we talked about at the end of last year, but um, e even some outlets that normally kind of tamper down their negative coverage of the UFC and Dana White have been pretty outspoken and had strong stances on this. Um, some big names in the media space who normally reserve their full opinion have, have really come out in full force on this. And, uh, Ariel Hawani and Luke Thomas both broke it down in a great way. If you haven't seen their takes on it, I highly recommend it. And on top of all this, TBS shut down the landing page and site for Dana White's Power Slap League. And it looked like it might be canceled. Jeremy Botter reported that the deal was all but dead. It was then confirmed through... Warner media executives that they had pushed the release back a week. So instead of debuting on January 11th, it would be debuting on January 18th. But from what I've heard, it's still very much in jeopardy. It still could get pulled depending on how things go. Um, you had mainstream media cover this New York times covered it. I believe variety and deadline both covered it. It, it got out there. It, it was a crossover event, not just our normal MMA space, right? And there's a lot to talk about here from a business perspective. Um, 
particularly to Endeavor's shares, their stock price dropping and this being attributed to it. I definitely want to go into that. But first, let's talk about the slap league being in danger, the ESPN coverage, and then then we'll go into Endeavor's share drop. So hearing that the slap league might get pulled is not very surprising. If you know anything about Warner Brothers uh, Discovery, they, I wouldn't say have super strict standards, but they have a certain level of standards that they refuse to budge on. Uh, most recently, the Briscoes, who are a wrestling tag team, had wanted to be called up to AEW. And I believe Tony Khan, who is the owner GM of AEW, said, yes, we want them. And because of a homophobic slur that one of them used quite some time ago, even though they apologized for it, uh, TBS essentially nixed it. They said, nope, we don't want them on TV. We don't want their characters. And if you haven't seen the pro wrestling uh, duo, the Briscoes, they are kind of a a play on, you know, your typical American redneck. There is, you know, uh, there are photos of them with like Confederate flags back in the day, which, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years ago, wasn't that uncommon to see some of this stuff, right? Like things have progressed quite a bit in the last decade. Uh, in, I mean, even the slur and, and uh, homophobic words they used, right, used to be kind of commonplace. You'd see that in TV and movies. And so it's one of those things where TBS nixing that kind of shows you where they draw the lines and some gives you an idea of what standards they're looking for. Obviously, Dana White slapping his spouse a week and a half before he is supposed to launch a power slap league where he's the face of this. He's part of the reason this is happening, right? Make no mistake. This wasn't just a, oh, you know, TBS really wants to get this new sport out. Dana White is is a big part of the selling point. Same with his F it Friday videos, right? You could have any fighter, any well-known person do that. What really sells it is Dana White doing it his celebrity. So you have this all happening and I I am shocked. Honestly, it made sense to me when TBS looked to pull it, but when they've said they just delayed it a week, if they actually do just delay it a week and then release it, I, I'm going to be even more shocked. Personally, I think this is the death of Dana White's power slap league. They will probably scrub Dana from pretty much everything they can in footage, (coughs) excuse me. And they will almost certainly look to rebrand without his face on it and see if that's actually a viable product. I wouldn't be shocked if they are running a test screening or two with Dana, not even involved and seeing what reactions are. It's a bad time for TBS and it's a bad time for Dana, right? Um, This is a separate venture important to note than what Dana is doing with the UFC and Endeavor. He had teamed up with the Fertitta brothers for this. Again, um, this is, this is a completely separate venture with them to get this done. And it could all be in jeopardy because of this altercation. Again, I truly think it's going to be pulled. I would be shocked if it's not, but 
it's possible there's enough interest and as we've seen in MMA media anyway, this stuff blows over pretty fast. How fast it will blow over in the mainstream, especially on, you know, a network like TBS, uh, it's going to be going to be different. Going to be harder to tell. My money is still on this gets pulled or makes it a sh- episode or two and then gets pulled, right? If they decide to go through it, through with it, the ratings are garbage, they will pull it pretty fast. I think you'd have to have pretty exemplary ratings in order to keep this on the air at this point. So yeah, not a good time for Dana and his partners in terms of the coverage of this specifically in MMA media. Again, you've seen people who normally are kind of quiet when certain details are revealed about the UFC or white and you know, his dealings be pretty outspoken about this. I'm not going to name names, but it's not, you know, again, if you follow the media, it's not too hard to tell. One outlet, however, that has been very soft on this, and you had Jeff Wagenheim, who's a writer for ESPN, come out and say this. He he ended up kind of retracting it a little bit, right? But he tweets out essentially that we've been told not to paint anything negative about Dana White. Um, he later goes on to say, "Not it's not an edict. It's they're strongly discouraged." Either way, it shows you, right? ESPN is essentially trying to bury any negative coverage, at least on their end, of um, this this whole ordeal. Uh, I, you know, shout out to Twitter user Smoogie, I believe that's how he pronounces it, uh, who you know called out Bre- Brett Okamoto for tweeting about this and then immediately tweeting right after, so it gets lost in the timeline, right? Like, okay, it's out there in a kind of semi-positive light. Uh, and then, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, ends up being kind of lost in the shuffle. It's clear they're playing a certain defense here. That is their partner for a very lucrative, very important deal for both ESPN and the UFC and Endeavor. And last thing they want to do is, is stir the pot. I'm sure they're not happy. Right they they cannot be thrilled. Nobody in the situation is happy with what's happened, but they are not going to shine the spotlight or criticize them as much as they probably should because of their partnership. Even Stephen A. Smith, you know, talks about this on first take, and it's it's a pretty soft, you know, like oh, he's a good friend of mine. It happened, but like it is it is a take that I believe if we were talking about. I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, if we're talking about Roger Goodell or I forget the name of it's terrible, but I, I forget the name of the NBA commissioner um, or Manfred in baseball. Right. And he had done this. I think we would be looking at a much more fiery speech from Stephen A. Smith, but you've got to protect your partners to an extent that that is a common business tactic, right? And this is what, I was talking about when I had the episode, I think it was three or four weeks back about journalism and MMA. There is very, very little actual journalism. There is a lot of media that covers certain things and a lot of PR. ESPN is a PR arm of the UFC to an extent. 
that's not that certain people can't have opinions where they may slightly disagree or they maybe point out, okay, this could be an issue, right? The James Krause betting situation, they were pretty on top of, but they have to get it okayed. They can't just, you know, write what they necessarily want to, especially about somebody like White. Yeah, that's that's how it works. It's not just ESPN that does this too. Right? ESPN is is again spotlight on them right now for this particular incident, especially with a ESPN writer coming out and saying this. But this happens in most media outlets, I would say. I'm trying to think of there's one or two that don't. Um but for the majority of them, this is how it is, especially the bigger ones. That that's just how it goes. In terms of coverage moving forward, we'll see what happens, right? If this really gets out of control, ESPN may kind of start to come out and have a stronger stance. But right now, I think they're kind of testing the waters and they're trying to downplay it as much as possible to stop it from spreading and becoming such a big story. Right? If ESPN goes out there and just lambasts White for his actions and you've got a bunch of articles and Stephen A. Smith yelling at him, that's going to really hurt the UFC, really probably give this thing some more fire to spread into more mainstream media. Instead, they give no comment and say it's a UFC Endeavor issue officially from ESPN. Um, something to that extent anyway. They basically don't give a, a true comment and say, yeah, you'll have to ask UFC or Endeavor. And then they have Stephen A. give that very muted opinion. It makes sense. It, it's a key partner. ESPN needs the UFC a lot more than the UFC needs ESPN at this point because the ink's been signed, right? They both need each other, don't get me wrong, but UFC will still be able to renegotiate their rights and, and sell well, especially given their actual numbers. You could always remove white in a hypothetical scenario and then um, you know, renegotiate a deal somewhere. ESPN is desperately looking for content, especially after the way Q4 and 2022 as a whole went. You had Bob Eager replacing Bob Chepik. Uh, they need the UFC much more than the UFC needs them right now. So, of course, they're going to try and protect them. Last thing to cover on this is Endeavor's 5% or so share drop. I saw a lot of people saying Endeavor's shares drop on you know White's incident. Uh, you had CNBC release a piece on it, which again, gave it more mainstream attention. But I saw a ton of journalists saying, you know, this is going to affect shareholders. This could lead to the end of Dana White. Important to understand how this works in the modern day age with shares dropping with stock. A lot of, of stock trades that are big are done via algorithms. It is the way it works. It's why, in my opinion, it's near impossible for a normal trader, especially a day trader, to be super profitable. You can, but it's very, very hard. And that is partially because of these algorithms that have been created. My first job out of college was at Fidelity Investments, and I worked uh, on 401k plans and pensions, some private plans, but the team that made the most money and I'm showing my age here because I worked during the Facebook IPO and all that stuff, right? All that fun stuff. Um, 
but but the team that made the most money and that was highly coveted and always had opened roles was their financial engineering team, which their job was essentially to create algorithms and code more efficient ways to execute trades. I didn't specifically on the fidelity side, I don't think it was, you know, oh, scraping social media and all that stuff. I mean, social media was still semi in its infancy and just barely gaining traction. But it was all about, you know, finding ways to speed trading transactions to, you know, automatically trade based on trends, right? Um, sometimes historical volatility, things like that. That's been turned into scraping social media sites so that if a particular Twitter account says something or uh, somebody on Facebook or what have you says something, it will automatically trigger a trade based on what it views as risky, et cetera. So AP, the Associated Press's Twitter, I think it was back in 2017, four or five years ago, was hacked and tweeted something out and it caused the Dow Jones to just drop like 120 points, like the whole Dow Jones, like a bunch of stuff happened. I be- it might've been something about Queen Elizabeth dying or being assassinated. I, I forget. And to be honest, I was going to look it up, but this week has been crazy. Um, but you can search it and it just shows you that, okay, this account tweets out something and it causes the entire market to feel it, right? We've seen flash crashes halted when Twitter accounts have been hacked. So when uh, Donald Trump's account was hacked, right uh, on Twitter. Nothing really came of that too much because I believe it was just like kind of a Bitcoin scandal. But I mean, that that's the type of thing where you said in particular tweet or something, you know, hits in the news and it will scrape those web pages and automatically execute the trade. I think that's what happened here, right? I think there was enough mainstream attention, enough negativity that it kind of started the cycle, especially if you look at the trend, like stock goes up a little bit, news stories um, kind of all hit. It it goes down pretty sharply and then it recovers slightly by end of day. It was down at like 7% at one point and then came back up to five. And then the next day it bounces back up 5% or so. I truly believe that's probably what happened is those algorithms got triggered. And then, you know, the traders go in and look at that. They see that happening in their portfolio right? They get, I'm sure they get notifications too. If you sell off a certain amount of executed trades and then they say, you know what? I, I think in the more grand scheme of things, business still looks good. This won't affect it too much. So I'm going to go ahead and rebuy at this lower price. Sold. I'm going to buy at the lower price and then, you know, send it back up again. Uh, that's, that's pretty common, honestly. Now I'm, I'm glossing over and and this is a super high level view of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say I'm an expert in this in any way, but from how I understand it, from what I remember and working at a place like Fidelity Investments and then later on at Charles Schwab, that's kind of how it works, right? So yes, I think the white news did send the shares tumbling, but it wasn't a investors are panicking, all selling immediately type deal. It was almost certainly an algorithm that did this as noticed by how it recovered throughout the week. Right. I believe, uh, from today's recording, it's back up above where it was before the scandal news hit still could go down. I mean, Endeavor shares have fluctuated plenty within this range, uh, over the past year or so, but you know, if it hits like 19 a share where it was pretty low, 
that might be more of an issue. That might be more of a signal. If it stays down or keeps trending downward, okay. But it bounced back in a day. I really think it was just uh, an executed algorithmic trade. So those are my thoughts on the Dana White scandal. Uh, I will continue to cover this from a business aspect. I don't think White will get removed from ESPN, uh, from ESPN, maybe from actually maybe from the eyes of ESPN for a while, he might not show up to as many fights, right? He might kind of step to the side for a month or two and just kind of do his own thing and then show back up, um, after the worst of this is blown over in terms of post-fight press conferences, all that stuff. But I don't think Endeavor will remove him. They signed him on a huge extension, partially because they believe he's kind of the Vince McMahon equivalent in MMA, right? The show could run without him, but they don't know how it would run. He's made it so successful, and he's the face of the UFC brand. They do not want to remove him. I mean, heck, again, TBS was offering him his own power slap show, almost certainly because white was involved. Right. So, and, and they talked about, you know, food network reaching out for an effort Friday type show. I don't know if that actually went anything. I, I haven't heard anything about it, but it's, it's one of those things where his face and name has become synonymous with that brand. He's become a celebrity, arguably one of the biggest celebrities of the UFC, if not the biggest and endeavor, signed him on that major extension because they truly believed he would elevate and keep the brand where it is and keep things running in a way that kept things profitable. If Endeavor shares really stay tanked for whatever reason, if more allegations come out, right, and this gets worse, uh, a la Vince McMahon, right, who had all the sexual assault allegations, uh, if Dana White, you know, it, it comes out Dana White's had more you know, domestic disputes with his wife or other accusations are made, then maybe they'll look at it. But right now I, I think he's going to be exactly where he is, uh, prior to slap league and all this happening in three to six months, maybe slap league doesn't get on the air. So I don't think that will fly, but I think he'll still do effort Friday. I think he will come back and do post fight press conferences. He'll still be the head and face of the UFC. That's my opinion. Curious to hear if you guys feel different, uh, but that's pretty much what I'm thinking right now because I truly believe he's the equivalent of the Vince McMahon of MMA, and it's going to take a lot more than this to bring him down. So Apparently, Bellator is on the market. So according to Ariel Hawani, uh, during his MMA Hour Award show, he mentioned that there were whispers that Bellator was on the market, AKA available to be bought. This isn't super surprising if this is true, which I do believe it's true. Um, I reached out to one or two, one or two people I know and didn't get any more information, but I didn't get any like, Oh, that's not happening. So could be, um, I, I won't etch it in stone by any means, but I trust Ariel on this. He, I mean, I trust, a lot of aerial scoops. He tends to be right on the money. So if Bellator is truly on the market, not that shocking. And who might buy it? Why I don't believe it's shocking is 
if you look at the CBS Viacom and the way the Bellator has marketed themselves in the past, you know, six months, there's been a stark difference in contrast from the way they tried to market their stars, their business model, what they were really going for with ex UFC names and, you know, trying to have UFC equivalent type pushes of stars. Uh, whereas now a lot of its tournaments, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. That's more of their roots. And it, it seems to be kind of a thing where, yeah, you, you have some marketing, but nothing like we saw when, when they first even went to Showtime, right? When they first went to Showtime, you had all these crossover potentials where you had boxers saying they might come and fight sea fighters and vice versa. You had a big fanfare of, okay, this is going to be a huge deal. There's a little bit of that with the uh, Fedor fight on CBS, but given the rumor that they might be for sale, that might be to show their drawing power. When Bellator came under the Viacom CBS umbrella, don't forget that Scott Coker ended up being put hierarchically underneath Steven Espinoza. That's his boss. And Espinoza has not been against MMA in any way, but he's been much more focused on Showtime boxing. And it never seemed that he was, oh, I'm all on board with Bellator MMA. I'm going to pump up this product. I'm going to do that. He, he seemed to indicate, okay, I'm going to let Scott do what Scott's been doing and we'll figure it out. And Bellator was in the green, right? In the black, rather. They, they were profitable prior to this merger, not by anywhere near the UFC standards, but from what we know, they were profitable going into this. So I believe the last number I heard was 2019, 20, yeah, I think 2019 80 million a year in revenue, right? Um, again, what the actual profit margin is, I don't know, but they, they, they were in the green. Um, I don't believe that changed. It could have since they had some bigger signings, but I really don't think that changed because they went to DAZONE, they, which would have been a, a locked-in deal for them, similar to the UFC and ESPN. But it certainly has seen, especially recently with some of the bigger cards they've had, it seems muted, their, their marketing, their push. Uh, Rise and Bellator was by far their biggest you know, event in the past six months. And that was a, you know, joint combination was awesome, but it, it still, it didn't really crack a lot of the mainstream media's attention, at least in the U.S. side. Um, another discussion we'll talk about another day is, is about Ryzen success since they lost the Fuji TV deal, which I think is very interesting. Uh, but Bellator being on the market, if... Viacom CBS wants to cut certain programming and focus on other, you know, specialties, right? Maybe more of what's going on at Paramount Plus and things of that nature. Um, it, it's not super shocking. It's really not. Um, in terms of who would buy Bellator, that's where it gets more interesting. I think there are a couple of suitors. One would be some, some you might not think of. One would be Disney. 
I think Disney is a potential suitor for Bellator. And a lot of people are probably looking at me going, what? But don't forget that Disney had originally been in preliminary talks with the UFC and internally had seriously discussed making a bid to buy the UFC instead of Endeavor. They ended up not going with it because of the image, right? Clash with, you don't necessarily think of Disney characters, uh, you know, and, and UFC fights. And it's not like it would have been like, Oh, UFC on Disney plus, right. That they would have put it on ESPN just like it is now. A lot of people forget and or don't know that ESPN is owned by Disney, right? A ton of people forget that. So would have been fine. Maybe would have gotten some criticism, but I, I don't think it would have been that bad. They opted not to go for it. Instead, did the streaming rights deal with Endeavor. And while it's been a lucrative deal for them, they are still paying a ton in fees and it will only increase Whereas if they had bought the UFC, they could cut down on production. They don't have to worry about paying streaming rights fees because it's just on their platform. It's way more lucrative for them. And we've talked about this, uh, you know, a quarter ago or so. Like, they they kind of regret it, is what we've seen. Where, yeah, it's been great for them. It's been a moneymaker, as far as any, everyone can tell. Sans, you know, the Q4 streaming numbers that came... And streaming, the streaming financials that came out at the end of last year that probably partially led to Chopic's exit. Um, but it, it's a good deal for them, and it's been a huge boost to ESPN Plus subscribership. So while they missed out on that opportunity, they have signed another media rights deal with PFL, where they don't own PFL, but it's a media rights deal. It's smaller, considerably smaller compared to the... And that seems to be gaining momentum now, right? PFL went from being like, okay, kind of middling, ratings were a little rough, to getting big sponsorships, getting a huge signing with Jake Paul, which we'll talk about next. And it could potentially take off. Imagine if they buy Bellator, especially if they're able to buy it at somewhat of a discount. I don't know that they will, but I could see it. And then you've got basically a one-stop MMA shop in ESPN+, Plus, right? I don't know how many new subscribers you'd end up with versus who's subscribing for the UFC and PFL right now. Uh, I I mean, again, I doubt a ton of people are subscribing just for PFL. Uh, Although there's more, I'm sure they're gaining traction and I've heard they're gaining traction from sources inside PFL, but I still think UFC is the bigger draw, but if you can draw them in, and then you get them to like other products in your catalog that makes them more inclined to stay with you when you raise prices or you know decide to make certain moves, right? When times get tough. If I love everything on ESPN and I only like half of the stuff I watch on Netflix and recession hits or prices go up for both or or both of those scenarios, I'm more inclined to keep ESPN Plus, right? And yes, if you're a hardcore MMA fan, you're probably keeping ESPN Plus anyway for UFC alone. But still, it it's not that far of a leap, especially if they can get a good deal for it. Because let's say they get a good deal for it and the numbers are doing better than, say, PFL. Well, then maybe you don't renew PFL's 
meteorites deal and instead you just have bellator which costs you very little to put on your streaming service yes you have all the other costs associated with bellator but i believe pfl deal was something like five or ten million dollars the first initial one was five million i've heard mixed reports on where it landed on the second renewal let's say you just put all those into the cost of production for Bellator. You're probably not paying 5 million, 10 million a year for Bellator's production costs and definitely not for fighter pay. That's, that's huge, right? So I could easily see Disney making a bid if they can get the right price, because again, you'd have to amateurize, you know, if you end up having to take debt to, to buy it, depending on what the sales price is, what Viacom CBS is asking for, that, that'll be a huge part of the negotiations, but you got to imagine Disney's at least interested. At least enough to ask, have some preliminary talks. So I think Disney is a potential buyer. Another one, Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, they were in talks, right, to potentially go after the UFC media rights deal when that renews in a year or two um, to compete with Disney to go after the UFC's broadcasting rights. They clearly, you know, liked Dana White enough to give him this power slap league and kind of try and give that a trial run and see what his, his pull did there. They are looking for live entertainment sports. And if you can get something that's again, not the UFC media rights deal, which is the, or media rights rather, which is the Holy grail of MMA media rights, but you can get something that's good at a discount and then again, not have to pay actual rights for it. Not a terrible call, right? Um, not a terrible call at all, especially if you think it could do well. Now, again, it would probably be moved to whatever the new streaming services, Discovery Plus, or yeah, I believe it's just all going to be Discovery Plus or HBO Discovery Weird combo, but I'm sure they could look at the numbers and think, well, maybe this is worth it, depending on how well Bellator is done on Showtime, depending on some of their um, you know, strategies, and, and depending on what Viacom's price is. I don't think they're as nice a fit as Disney, given Disney's exposure to MMA already, but I don't think they're a, a terrible fit, given where they seemingly want to go in the next five years or so, right? Discovery, um, Warner Brothers Discovery has, has canceled so many movie projects. They're looking for profitability. That's been a huge part of this. But Bellator, again, technically in the black and they they have AEW, which they seemingly like. We'll see where that goes with media rights coming up soon, but wouldn't be that far a stretch to add Bellator. I mean, if they don't, want to replace AEW if AEW is asking too much money, right? They could use buying Bellator's leverage and say, all right, forget AEW media rights. We're just going to do Bellator instead. Yes, it's a different sport, different audience, but still could end up doing fairly well, right? I mean, Bellator's shows and their ratings were always rough the last couple of years they were on terrestrial TV, but they were also on Paramount Network, which is not in nearly as many homes as TNT and TBS. I don't know the exact split, but it's a little bit more, you know, hidden. So 
Where that would end up equating to, where it would go, I don't know. But I, I could see the offer. I think it's less likely than Disney, but still a potential suitor, in my opinion. Could be wrong, but especially with one championship's involvement, they you know when they had one on TNT, they have a they have a little bit of an appetite for it at least. Lastly, I think the final options that I could see, but are more stretches right now, um, would be something like Amazon or Netflix. Amazon's already paying one championship to broadcast their rights and kind of add more live sports. This would be an opportunity to buy an entire league. Again, it's not the UFC, but compared to one, the ratings are probably better, at least given what they saw on terrestrial TV. We don't know. We don't know the streaming numbers for one. Uh, and, and it's going to be kind of ex- obscured there. We don't know ex- the exact amount of money that Amazon is paying for one's media rights, but it's, it's helped one grow, right? We've seen that with new sponsorships. They're on a big platform, a name platform now in the U S. So that does help with viewership and, uh, with getting some of the sponsors that they probably were seeking for a while, but, it was harder to get when you were just on Bleacher Report. I I could see Amazon making an offer. Again, depends on what Viacom, CBS is asking, but uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they didn't want to take a, a gamble on it because live sports and live entertainment has been a huge push of theirs as of late. If you're willing to do a media rights deal with one, again, depends on what the number is, you've got to imagine they at least think Bellator could be a good addition to the portfolio. Especially if you keep the one deal, you've got both on back-to-back, you're able to kind of bring the, hey, hardcore MMA fans, yes, you can watch uh, ESPN and, or ESPN, you can, yeah, you can watch ESPN for UFC and PFL, but how about coming to one, or one, man, sorry, I'm all over the place. How about coming to Amazon for one in Bellator? only need two subscriptions. It's not a bad call, in my opinion. Netflix is also technically in the the mix of things, given their rumored interest in UFC rights, uh, given what they've done with F1 and how they're trying to move into live events. Again, not a terrible call, but I, I think they're less likely than Amazon. A streaming service of of some sort, though, Right now, content is still very much needed. And what profitable, lucrative potential content is needed. Where these companies rate Bellator in the grand scheme of MMA, I don't know. But Bellator has been the clear number two for a long, long time. Depending on what metrics you look at, they might not be number two anymore. But They are one of the few MMA organizations outside the UFC that has a name and is profitable, right? Without the help of investment capital, which PFL and one still need quite a bit of. They, again, are starting to turn that corner where, okay, maybe they could end up being fully profitable and, you know, with these sponsorships and some of the other deals they have. But Bellator is at least right now mature enough where it will bring you in money. You won't be sinking in a ton of money, hoping that certain things get signed, et cetera, et cetera. So I could see it, Amazon or even Netflix making a bid. Let me know what you think uh, about Bellator being for sale. Do you think it's a good idea, bad idea? They could stay at Viacom CBS. 
especially if they don't get an offer that uh, Viacom likes, could easily just say, now we're going to keep it. But let me know where you think they should go. And if you'd be excited to see Bellator on ESPN Plus or TBS, TNT, or or Discovery Plus, or Amazon, or Netflix. Let me know. I'm very curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this because it could very well happen, and it could happen sooner rather than later. All right. Speaking of non-UFC MMA organizations, the PFL made a huge announcement this week in that they have signed YouTuber-turned-boxer Jake Paul. So big announcement. Uh, Jake Paul comes out with a video that's all cut and edited the way a Jake Paul video is expected to be edited um, and announces that essentially he's joining the PFL exclusively. He will become head of fighter advocacy that he is co-founding a PFL super fight division that will be pay-per-view and that at least 50% of the pay-per-view revenue will go to the fighters. Uh, it's also mentioned that he got a minority stake in the PFL. So he got actual ownership of the PFL for doing this and uh, that he challenged Nate Diaz to a boxing match. And then six months later, an MMA fight Diaz's response to this was a picture of Ryzen, which we won't go too far into, but um, you know, Nate has been linked to Floyd Mayweather in Ryzen. So obviously if that's on the table versus Jake Paul, Nate's going to do that first, but either way, this is a massive, massive, publicity win for the PFL. I almost did a good deal, bad deal on this, but it's too much of a win in the marketing perspective where there's way more eyes on PFL than there have been prior to this announcement. It's it's a no-brainer that this is good for the organization, no matter where this goes, right? Unless a major scandal comes out about Paul or something crazy happens, uh, this, is, this is a very good thing for the PFL in general already. So to break down some of this again, when we talk about Jake Paul's disruption via, you know, market substitution, right? Which was him going out and boxing MMA fighters and giving them a bigger payday than they had ever seen and challenging Dana White about on fighter pay, talk about he was going to buy enough Endeavor shares to change things, et cetera. That's, him causing some market disruption both in boxing because he got a lot of followers and younger eyes on boxing that hadn't been watching before, but also offering a substitute market for fighters, especially name MMA fighters who weren't champions necessarily. They were former champs or maybe they were contenders and they made way more money than champions in some cases, right? Um, Ben Askren, made far more money than Davison Figueredo made in his pay-per-view fights against uh, Brandon Moreno. That's, that's huge. And he's been doing this for a while. So the fact that he signs with PFL an MMA organization to further disrupt uh, the MMA scale and an organization like PFL that has a partnership in ESPN is getting bigger sponsorships makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing I do want to point out, uh, they said they're, you know, co-founding the pay-per-view super fight division. Technically, that first fight in that so-called super fight division was at the end of last year where Kayla Harrison uh, lost 
to Larissa Pacheo um, and and the you know finale of the PFL tournament. But it's a good move and a smart move by PFL to rebrand that, especially since things didn't go their way, and instead say, okay, we're coming out with this new division that Jake Paul is going to help us found and all this other stuff. It, ma- it makes a lot of sense. And again, Paul's natural progression here is he, he said he still wants to be a pro boxer and he's serious about it. But if he doesn't want to go into legitimate, like, okay, I'm going to fight c- contenders and try and actually win a legitimate title in boxing after beating Anderson Silva and getting again, more actual credibility under his name, and yes, Anderson Silva was super old, and it was closer than a lot of other fights, but, I mean, Paul got the nod. It, it makes sense to make this pivot. Um, he, he even says, like, oh, yeah, everybody's talking about I'll get trounced in MMA, but, you know, I was a wrestler beforehand, and he shows a whole bunch of clips of him being younger, talking about MMA. So it, it will probably resonate with, with his fans that don't know any better, and they'll be like, oh, man, yeah, he could do this. And he can. It just will be interesting to see where it actually goes, how, how he'll do against takedowns and jujitsu in an MMA fight. All that being said, it, it's a huge move for the PFL marketing-wise and a huge move for PFL fighters based on what Paul said in terms of he's going to put them on his Instagram, on his YouTube channel. I mean, he's got a ton of followers, right? That's how he got his name is... He and his brother did a bunch of crazy influencer stuff and they made an insane amount of money being influencers. They have a ton of followers. It will probably give some of these MMA fighters that are outside the UFC more potential audience exposure than they even would get in the UFC, right? Some of these guys would probably struggle to crack the top 15 or get anywhere near the top 10 if they were in the UFC. They are in the tournament. They are automatically highlighted by Paul, right? I think he called out, uh, I forget who, Anti uh, Elijah, the the heavyweight, right? Like, I don't know how far he would get in the UFC, especially heavyweight divisions kind of thin, but he's not a consensus like, oh, he could challenge Francis or he should be, you know, up there with Sergey and gone, right? He's, he's not even anywhere in that conversation. He will probably get more exposure than Sergey or gone will for quite some time. If those guys end up winning the belt and they're, you know, featured more prominently through ESPN and the media, sure. But even as contenders, top contenders, they're not going to get as much exposure as Jake Paul could probably provide them. So it's a huge win for PFL and PFL fighters. Um, I don't know exactly how much, you know, of the company they gave away to Paul and his associate, but they're minority owners. So again, they can't just take over and, and make a switch here. And it's a privately owned company. So it's not like they can also buy more stock to take over anything like that. But if PFL's ultimate goal is also to go the route of, say the UFC where they want to make enough money that then they get sold off to a publicly traded company, which is what a lot of these companies want to do, right? A lot of these promotions are trying to get enough momentum until they get to the point where they get a buyout offer and then they take all of their money and they either stay on and help or they go home. But then they're, you know, 
financially secure. They go do another project, all that fun stuff. That's the main way startups work is almost all of them want an exit strategy. If that's the true exit strategy of the PFL, this helps them enormously because now you can go to investors, uh, to potential companies that may want to purchase you and say, look, we've got Jake Paul now. Look at how much exposure we're getting. Look at these other sponsorships, which I'm sure they'll get even more sponsorships with Jake Paul under their banner. It, it's a it's a really big move for the PFL and one that you have to applaud them for. In terms of the Diaz challenge, that's the most marketable and lucrative fight if you can get that done. My guess would be Diaz fights Mayweather first if that's truly on the table and then would probably take Paul up on his offer, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get that fight done in PFL too, that probably does very well. I mean, don't forget that Paul versus Woodley too did kind of flop pay-per-view wise. I think it was like 65,000 or less, which wasn't great. Was a last notice, uh, last minute replacement, you know, um, all that stuff. But reportedly Anderson Silva versus Paul did closer to 200, 300K because you had Silva as a legit threat to Paul and it was more of an intriguing fight. If those numbers are accurate, which I don't know that they are, but if they are, a Diaz fight would be massive. A Diaz fight you're looking at easily, in my opinion. Paul versus Diaz does the boxing and MMA, maybe not so, but depending on how the boxing one goes. But if, let's say, they just did an MMA fight, that easily eclipses most of the other current promotions revenue outside of the UFC from a single fight. I mean, compared to what Bellator pay-per-views have done, what, uh, you know, PFL obviously did in the past, Ryzen, it's harder to tell because we don't have that info, but I would still, I would still easily wager that does several hundred thousand buys more than Anderson Silva versus Paul. And it's a huge hit. And even if it's boxing, I still think same thing. And if it's under the PFL banner, that's massive. That's big for the PFL. That's big for ESPN. It's a huge win all around. Will that fight actually happen? Again, I think Diaz will take the Mayweather fight if it's on the table first. And then afterwards, if he gets the pay he wants, yes. If not, I don't know. But I could easily see that happening. And I could see Diaz getting offered enough money by PFL just because they want him there to elevate them. They'd be willing to eat more of that cost. So I think, I think it's a real possibility. Overall, this is easily a massive win for the PFL. Um, again, where this goes, we'll see. This could kind of fall on its face in a couple of ways. One, Again, Diaz turns it down and they don't really have anybody who has enough of a name to fight Paul. Uh, as John Nash pointed out, and as we've been saying here on the podcast, with the sunset clauses and MMA contracts, you'll see more opportunities for fighters to get out of their contracts and say, you know what? No, I'm going to try and maybe go over to the PFL and make more money there, especially if it's like, hey, let's fight Jake Paul and you're in the right weight division. Uh, but again, it, it could, depending on timing, end up with Paul 
fighting a less than desirable dance partner. And if that happens, could fall on its face a little bit, could cause some issues. Um, but even Anthony Pettis versus Jake Paul, right? With Pettis already being under the banner, that could still probably do all right. I, I don't know. It could fall on its face, could not. The likelihood is low, I would say. I'd say the risk so far with where things stand now is pretty low for this to fall flat on their face. The other thing that could kind of kill the momentum with this is let's say the boxing does really well. Numbers are up. It's great. And then Paul does an MMA fight and just gets destroyed, right? Similar to what happened with Clarissa Shields, where she clearly struggled in her first MMA fight with takedowns, barely won. Then this next one loses to mostly a no name kind of cuts her credibility in that sport. Um, Let's say that happens, and especially if it's to somebody not well-known, which I don't think the PFL will make that mistake again. They'll probably set Paul up against somebody who they would tout as having superior grappling skills, and that's why they won, et cetera. But if all that happens, they end up with less pay-per-view buys than they want. Momentum kind of dies pretty hard. They've now given away a significant chunk, I would imagine. Uh, I mean, at least a at least a significant chunk based on the fact that Paul and Paul's associate are getting to be minority owners, uh, which means that you get less money. And if you know, you're out there trying to get more investment capital, which this is a terrible time to have to go to a VC or to investors to try and get more money. Seed money right now is, is draining and drying up pretty quick. Um, it could end up biting you in the butt, but that all being said, I think the risk is tolerably, low enough for the PFL that this was the right call. And Don Davis uh, has got to be happy uh, with this. Peter Murray as well. So we'll see where it goes. Could be very interesting. If you get the Diaz fight, I think it's easily paid for itself. If you don't or things go south for any reason with all that, you've lost some equity and only they know how much equity so that could hurt. But again, not... Not shocked that this was the deal they made with investment capital drying up and the need to turn a profit and and get on somebody's radar to possibly buy them sooner rather than later. So we'll we'll see what happens. But yeah, I mean, very smart move in my opinion by PFL. I, I like it. I like it quite a bit. All right, last thing I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to do it semi-quickly because I'm losing daylight here, is we need to talk about the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S., Introducing a rule that would essentially ban non-compete clauses in labor contracts. So why is this important? Well, that could hypothetically mean if this rule was put in place, stayed all of that, that fighters could fight for the UFC for a couple of fights, say, you know what, I don't like this. I'm going to go ahead and go over to Bellator. And that's it. I mean, this is how the UFC has built their competitive advantage with scarcity, right? Having a certain amount of the world's top fighters under contract and locked into a contract for a set time used to be just kind of indefinite, especially if you were a champion. Then after the antitrust lawsuit, they revised it down to five years with the sunset clause. If this rule takes effect, fighters would be free to quit whenever. I mean, not exactly whenever I'm sure there would be some limits, but hypothetically your contract runs out. You're just, okay, I'm, I'm over here and I'm, I'm, or I'm going to quit. Are you release me? Great. I'm just going to go over 
to the next place immediately, which you kind of have that already, but it, it could have massive ramifications, right? You, you could say, nope, I'm going to quit. I'm done working with you and I'm going to go to Bellator just mid contract. That's, that's a hypothetical. Um, I don't know exactly again where this will go. I have my doubts that this will hold up to legal challenges. Uh, a couple other pundits have stated that it is semi-vulnerable to legal challenges. Others have stated that it, they've got some court cases that they could you know, fall back on. But given the current makeup of the courts in the U.S. that are generally pretty heavily uh, conservative and thus tend to be more pro-corporation uh, and business... I would imagine this would have such ramifications they would maybe get involved if it if it came down to it, right? If this gets introduced, first there's a 180-day, uh, you know, I think it's like a 30-day commentary and then a 180-day waiting period or so. So it'll be a while, at least six, seven months. But if this rule is introduced, I am sure it will be challenged legally and then we'll have to go through the courts. Will, will an injunction be placed on it? I don't know for sure. I would imagine a court would probably do that, again, because of the ramifications. Keep in mind, right, this this greatly affects me in my nine-to-five type, right? Um, and I can tell you, working with startups and a lot of smaller companies, non-competes are everywhere. And they are very, in some ways, crucial to the startup world because if I'm working with a new company that is, you know, maybe 30, 40 people, they've come up with this idea or business model that's really taking off. And then I opt to say like, okay, you need to pay me so much more to do this. And they say, no, I don't want to do that. And I leave and then just go to their competitor and say, hey, look at this business model. That's technically trade secrets. And I'm sure it would be subject to other things, but it's hard. It's very hard to prove that I'm the one that, you know, replicated their business model exactly. And not just, hey, like, they came up with it themselves. It's, I mean, it's a whole thing. Or just again, what if I'm very, very good at my job, right? And the company wants to continue hiring me and and they're, they're a startup, they're small, they want to lock me in for a while and then make sure I don't go anywhere after a year or two. And then lo and behold, here comes, uh, here comes a competitor offering me more money. And I say, okay, sorry, I'm going to quit. And then I'm going to go work for them immediately could really hurt smaller companies, bigger companies. It could hurt too, but it's really small startups that would get most affected by this. I, most of the times when I sign contracts with companies that I consult for that are that range, which I usually love small startup type companies, the biggest part of red lines is non-competes and different, you know, different areas and legal sections regarding non-competes. It's a huge deal. So getting rid of this would be, game-changing in so many ways. Personally, it'd be game-changing to me where it'd be kind of nuts because I could easily just consult for some company and then if there was some issue or you know they didn't have work for me, which sometimes happens, right? Sometimes because as I'm a consultant, I'm one of the first to just say they don't necessarily cut me. I've had many companies say, hey, we love working with you. We just don't have the work for you right now. We need to have our full-time people on it or we're done with this project, but that's fine. That's normal business. But for me to then do that and then turn around and go to their competitor, it, I mean, great for me because, okay, great. I have way more opportunities for work, but not so great for them because there's nothing stopping me from going there. And then, you know, 
talking to them about what other companies were doing, which again, happens all the time, especially in the startup world. I know it's not supposed to happen, but the amount of times I've seen that happen is nuts. I don't really do that in my particular work because it's not, what I do doesn't really, I, you know, I'm not coding or doing like have some crazy secret formula from Coca-Cola that I'm bringing other places. Uh, I'm mostly bringing my own techniques and tips and tricks and, and you know, kind of rolling with that or, you know, where I've learned from younger days, which doesn't apply, um, you know, through college and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's big. It's very, very big is what you need to know. And again, with fighters, with MMA organizations, this could really make a difference because non-compete means, you know, you could go to do a Bellator show even while under contract with a particular person, hypothetically. It all depends on the actual wording of the rule. If it stands, um, it's a very big deal. Again, personally, I don't going to last. It's definitely going to be challenged, but I don't think it's going to survive given the current court climate in the U.S. But if it does, it, it's a game changer. And how it will exactly change things will be interesting because I am sure that if it does hold, there will be certain aspects that are still intact and UFC contracts, uh, actually all, all MMA contracts in general and any type of independent contractor contract in general will be tweaked uh, to try and take advantage of other loopholes or other areas to kind of block things, right? There's no way companies are just going to say like, well, that's the way it is. And now we've just got to deal with it. They will look to find new ways to enforce non-competes or trade secrets or something that will give some same effect. I'm sure there's a bunch of lawyers right now currently working on it once this rule was introduced. And again, there is a long time before this actually goes into effect. So we'll see what happens. I don't think we're going to get to the point where fighters can suddenly say at any time, okay, cool. I'm just going to leave and go, you know, fight for another promotion because whatever, while they're under contract with somebody else. Like, yep, you've offered me three fights. I have to stay, uh, you know, fight three times with you, but you know what? I, there's no non-compete rule, so I'm also going to fight three times in Bellator. I'm also going to fight three times in the UFC and PFL. I I do not think we will get there. It would be awesome and insane if that's what happened, uh, but we'll see. Also, keep in mind, right, that this is an FTC that is led by a more liberal government, was put in place by a more liberal, liberal government, and would not be shocked if come next election say this does stand and all this stuff happens next election, a more conservative uh, iteration evolves based on how the presidential Senate, all those fun elections go, and thus it reverts back or, or changes the rule, right? We've seen this with internet neutrality. We've seen that we've seen this with a bunch of stuff. Just because one administration puts it in place doesn't mean it will stay there forever, especially in the US. So right now, I don't think it's anything to get too worked up about. As time goes on, we'll keep an eye on it. If it really looks like it's going to stand or, you know, legal proceedings seem to be leaning in favor of the FTC, that'd be massive. I'll keep you up to date. But right now, I'd say taper your expectations with this. It, it's going to be a while. And again, I I am hoping that I am wrong. Uh, there are a couple of journalists. I know uh, John Nash is, is very hopeful it will stand. I hope he's right. I really do. I just, I don't know that I'll see it happening because there's, there's too much at stake for too many industries. Gotta imagine it won't happen, but let me know your thoughts on this. Um, 
I mean, oh, if you might be affected by a non-compete, I know a lot of people, especially in the gig economy, this could really make a difference. Um, yeah, it, it, I know it would affect me greatly. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But yeah, don't don't hang your hat on anything just yet. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up the first episode of the Fight Business Podcast for 2023. Thank you for joining me. I know it's gotten progressively darker. I'm barely hanging on to daylight to do this, uh, but uh, super excited for this year. Got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, a lot of different things we might try out this year. We'll see where it all goes, but really appreciate all the love last year. Appreciate you guys tuning in, uh, commenting, interacting on YouTube. I've seen those comments. I know I haven't interacted a lot because work was crazy in holidays, but I will answer and be more a part of that. Uh, keep keep them coming. I love that discourse. I love seeing your guys' opinions on this stuff because stuff's pretty nuts right now, especially this week. So let me know your thoughts on everything. And until next time, Get money.